0: Psalm 136 verse 1 give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever we love praising God for his love for his steadfast love, His covenant love—that's what the psalm is all about. This refrain, "Give thanks," uh, His steadfast love endures forever, recu- uh, reoccurs every verse of the psalm. So it's a major theme of the psalm, and the psalm unfolds for us. What are the implications or the application of God's steadfast love? What does God's steadfast love look like? Uh, if you look at verse four, it, it talks about creation. To Him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. So it starts off by going through God's acts of creation in uh, verses 1 to 4. And then verses 4 to 9, it moves on to God's acts of redemption. If you look at verse 10, for example, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt... For his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. For his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, his steadfast love endures forever. And it's going through uh, the act of redemption whereby God brought these people out from bondage in Egypt. And led them into the promised land. The land that he had given to them and promised to his forefathers. Verse 13 To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, For his steadfast love endures forever. We're so familiar with that biblical account. But just think about what it's saying. Because of God's steadfast love, he struck down the firstborn children in Egypt. That's verse 10. Because of God's steadfast love, he drowned many Egyptians and soldiers in the Red Sea. Because of God's steadfast love, he struck down kings, verse 17. He killed mighty kings, verse 18. And we don't often associate those actions with steadfast love, do we? But they are. D.A. Carson comments on the psalm. He says, informed as they are by pluralism, Our ears find it strange to append the refrain, His his steadfast love endures forever to such lines as, Who struck down great kings, and who swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea? But these actions were expressions of God's elective love for his chosen people. The notion that God loves all people exactly the same way in every respect finds little support in Scripture. God's covenant love, his steadfast love, his faithful love towards his elect, his chosen ones, has a corollary in his judgment of the wicked. That's the other side of the coin. We looked at this, God's covenant love, a few weeks back in Romans chapter 9. Jacob I loved. But there's a corollary. Esau I hated. This morning we're going to consider the rest of Romans chapter 9 and it contains the corollary to God's steadfast love towards his elect, the doctrine of reprobation. And though we find it difficult to understand uh, with the psalmist in Psalm 136, we ultimately have to give thanks to the God of gods and the Lord of lords. We need to worship God even for this doctrine. So I've called this message the rightness of wrath. Because as we look at Romans chapter 9, we'll see not only that it unfolds what God's wrath is, but it calls us to worship Him for it because it glorifies Him. The wrath of God manifests His glory and He should be worshipped for it in the same way that we worship God for His mercy and His grace. So this morning we'll see five reasons why wrath is right and should lead us to humble worship and thanks. So Romans chapter 9, you can open your Bibles there, Romans chapter 9. It's been a few weeks, and uh, Romans chapter 9 consists of these questions and answers. Uh, Paul opposes a question which he's probably heard in objection to the gospel that he's preached, and then he, he goes about answering it, and that's how the whole chapter is constructed. And so I want to just uh, remind you of the context uh, of this chapter and pick up on the flow of the argument. It really starts in chapter 8 in verse 28, Romans eight twenty-eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, and that means to be loved beforehand. That's what that word means. Those whom he loved beforehand, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. So the beginning of this chain is God's unconditional, steadfast love in eternity past toward us who believe. And the end of this chain is glory with God forever. And there's these links uh, in this chain. And it's really about the expression of God's love toward us. And that's why at the end of chapter 8, he can conclude, no, in verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. So we will overwhelmingly conquer because of God's steadfast love toward us, leading us onward to glory through every kind of trial and difficulty. Which then raises the question, what about God's elect, Israel? What about the love and the promises that God made to Israel? How is it that so many Jews in Paul's day find themselves rejecting Jesus Christ outside of grace destined for wrath? How can this be? That's the dilemma that Paul must answer. And so in chapter 9, he begins to address this. Verse 1 I'm speaking the truth in Christ Jesus. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's, He's speaking about his fellow Jews, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. They were God's covenant people in the Old Testament. What has happened to God's steadfast love towards them? To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the unstated question here is, what about God's steadfast love, His covenant love, towards His chosen people, And that's why he concludes in verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though the promises and his good intentions towards them have been thwarted. Why? Because he goes on to argue in the next portion of the text, not all who are physical descendants of Israel are children of God. Not all were chosen to be his children. He can say there in verse 7, not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so he begins to, to, to give support for his argument that there is a select group within the national Israel who are God's elect, God's chosen ones. And, and, and to, uh, as support for his argument, he, he states here Isaac and Ishmael, both descendants of Abraham by lineage. And yet Isaac's chosen and not Ishmael. Isaac becomes the object of God's covenant promise and love and not Ishmael. And then he cites a second example, because some people say, well, Ishmael was not through Sarah, and so maybe, you know. So he states a second example there, Esau and Jacob, in verses 10 and 11. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, But because of him who calls, he was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so God chose one son and not the other. Twins, nothing in them before they'd ever done anything good or bad. Nothing because of what they'd done. God chooses sovereignly and freely to work out his covenant promises and purposes through one and not through the other. And so his answer introduces us to this doctrine of unconditional election, which we looked at in some detail a few weeks back. Wayne Grudem defines uh, unconditional election as follows. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. But this, of course, raises another question. Is this right and fair? Is it right and fair to work out God's purposes and plans this way by loving some in a way that he doesn't love others? And that's the question posed in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And he answers this objection in verses 14 to 18. Look at verse 15. He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I am compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God. Who has mercy And so he says he, he cites Exodus 33 and 34 this account where God says, uh, where Moses says to God, show me your glory and, and, and God says, well you can't see my glory and love, but he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he proclaims his character to him and and part of God's character, his very nature is that he's a God who shows mercy to whom he wills. He's a God who's sovereign in, in being able um, to show mercy to whomever he chooses. That's his very nature as God. This is what lies at the heart of God's glory and goodness. goodness, His sovereign right to show mercy and grace to whomever he chooses. And it's not based on anything outside the person. It's not by him who runs or him who wills. It's not based on anything that this person does or desires. It's based solely on God's sovereign choice and freedom. If grace somehow becomes an obligation or an expectation, it's no longer grace. If mercy can be merited in some way or deserved in some way, it's no longer mercy. Grace, for grace to be grace, it must be divine. It must be sovereign. It must be free. So that much is sort of understandable, but the text doesn't stop there. If you're struggling, you're going to struggle more. (laughs) Because the text doesn't stop there, you see. Look at verse 17. He says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It's not just that God has mercy on whomever he wills, but he hardens whomever he wills. The corollary is also true. He judges and shows wrath to whomever he wills. So he might show his power in them. Paul goes on to highlight this other side of the coin. God not only mercies, but he also hardens. He not only saves, but he also judges. And the glory of God is shown not only in his mercying, but also in his judging and his wrath. Which raises the final objection in the in the in the chapter then. How can God do this? How can He judge people if He's the one who hardens them and leaves them in their sin? How can He then judge them if they have no option but to continue headlong in their sinful rebellion? Verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does He still find fault? Who can resist His will? If it's God's will and purpose and plan that some would be hardened in sin and rebellion and then judged as the demonstration of God's justice and righteousness and power and wrath, how can this be viewed as justice? How can this be right? How can this kind of wrath be right? And Paul answers this objection in verses 20 to 29. And my goal this morning is to try and help you like his answer. Not just accept it, but love it. So let's read verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in this very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, they will be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So five reasons why wrath is right. God's wrath is right and should lead us to humble worship and thanks. One, the limits of man, in verse 20. Two, the rights of the Creator, in verse 21. Three, the revelation of glory, in verse 22 and 23. Fourthly, the recipients of mercy, in verse 24 four and twenty to twenty six and then the remnants of judgment in verse twenty seven to twenty nine. So five reasons. Let's look at the first one, the limits of man. His initial response there in verse twenty is directed to those who would shake their fist and say, This is not right, God, you are not being just and fair. And those who would presume to tell God what he may or may not do. He simply says, Who are you, O man? Who are you? Who are you to question God? To point a finger at God? To ask anything of God? To make God answer to you and your ideas and your view of justice and right? We are dust. We are clay. We are nothing but God's creation and He can mold us and make us and fashion us in any way He chooses. And He can do with us whatever He wills because He is God and we are not. The limits of man. To those who would shake their fist in God and complain, Paul reminds them, Who do you think you are? You are but man. How can man presume to understand God and His ways fully? How can we presume to contemplate justice divine justice in in all its lengths and breadths. then he moves on from the limits of man to the rights of God in verse 21 he says has has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use God has sovereign rights over everything that he has made and he can do with his creation whatever he so chooses Psalm 115, verse 1 to 3. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Daniel four twenty four and 25. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is at the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest Gentile ruler of the time. And he, can, he came to realize as God humbled him, this God is greater than any man. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? None can stop God doing his will and none can say to him, what have you done? He answers to no man. The greatness of God. The rights and honor of God. Verse 21, Paul affirms God has sovereign right to create creatures for whatever reason and purpose he chooses. And he chooses for honor and dishonor, for wrath and for mercy, for salvation and destruction. The potter can do with the clay whatever he chooses. And humble worship flows from the recognition that we are man. And we will never fully be able to grasp the extent of God's power and goodness and wisdom and ways. And we can't recreate and refashion God into our image. We can't demand that God meet our expectations and He be the kind of God we would like. And we can't mold Him into an idol that we think is acceptable to worship. Our job is to see God for who He is as He's revealed Himself and say, that is God as He's revealed Himself and that is good and that's who we worship because He's worthy. In verse 22 and 23, he goes on to tell us why God creates people who are destined for destruction. And his answer basically comes down to this, for his own glory. God does this because this is what most glorifies him. And this is what God is always doing. The revelation of glory. It's the hardest verse in in Paul's whole argument. And it it brings us face to face with this doctrine of reprobation. He says there in verse 22 what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory so let's break down the sentence just that we can make sure we understand it it starts with this question what if God And it doesn't really finish the sentence in a way. Because really, the answer is what if God did this? Surely He has the right to. If God did this, surely He's God. He can do this. Surely it's right for Him to do whatever He has done. So that's the intended answer there. And then we have to understand what is the main sentence and take out the two modifying phrases. So in this text, there's a main sentence What is God being doing? He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's the main sentence. That's what God has done. He's endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Then there's two modifying phrases. The first one is found before, desiring to show his wrath. Uh, It's shown at the beginning of verse 22. And the other modifying phrase is found in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory. So these tell us why. God has endured with much patience vessels that have been prepared for us. Why has he done that? The first modifying phrase begins with that participle, ING word. And it tells us why God has done that, because he's so desired. God desiring. God desiring to do what? He's so desired to do what? Look at what the text says to show his wrath and to make known his power. Why has God endured vessels of wrath that have been prepared for destruction? Because he desired something, to show his power and his wrath more clearly. And yeah, we're given a, a, a peek into what motivates God in everything he does. God is motivated by his glory. God is impressed with himself. He's the most impressive person in the universe. And he desires nothing more than to show his excellencies in full measure. And he's created us for the very purpose of being able to recognize that, delight in that, and worship him for that reason. And as Piper points out, before we think God is some sort of uh, you know, self-centered uh, person, he's created us that we find our greatest joy in being lost in love and praise in who He is. He's created us for Himself, so we come together in the most complete way as we see God for who He is, and we love Him for who He is, and we worship and serve Him for who He is. That's when we really are fully who God created us to be, when we are fully happy. Psalm 19 says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. That's why He made them. Isaiah 43, 7, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why were we created? For the glory of God, to show forth the excellencies of God's character and nature. I like the way Piper puts it. He says in 1 Corinthians ten thirty one, God commands us, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is not an admonition to do God a favor. It's a it's a command to align our lives with his eternal goal. He created us for his glory. God's great aim in creating and governing the world is that he be glorified. I created you for my glory. I formed you and I made you. God is the center of the universe and not man. It is wrong for man to seek his own glory. It is wrong for man to be so self-centered because we are not perfect. We are not good. We are not glorious. And when we set ourselves in that position and say to other people, look at me, I'm amazing. We are putting ourselves in the place of God because we are not amazing. He is. And it's perfectly right and good that God puts himself at the center because he is amazing. And we were created for that very purpose. God's whole goal in creation is not the redemption of man, but his own glory. The ultimate end to which he is taking everything is not that humankind could be redeemed, but it's so that he could be glorified. And once you understand that, you can begin to make sense of this text. Because if God's whole aim is, in life is to redeem mankind and if our whole perspective is man-centered we put ourselves at the center then god is messing up isn't he he's making a mess but if his glory is the ultimate end of all things then even the punishment of wicked sinners can serve that end and it does our problem is that we put ourselves at the center of God's eternal purposes and say, how can anything be good unless it accomplishes the ultimate good of mankind? That's our problem. And we need to get ourselves out of the center. God has purposed and created and upholds a universe in which his justice and his wrath and his power can be put on display in the eternal punishment of the wicked. That is how God has purposed and ordained the universe to be. Because it displays his glory. And he wants to display his wrath and his justice by punishing the wicked whom he created for this very purpose that in their punishment he would be glorified. God is the subject of this paragraph. He's the one desiring, he's the one willing, he's the one enduring with much patience. He's the one who's prepared them for destruction. He's not ashamed to be a God of wrath. He's not ashamed to reveal himself as this. Why are we ashamed? Why do we not find it acceptable? Because we put ourselves at the center. There's another phrase here modifying why God is enduring with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And that's found in verse in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The whole picture is not just that God is glorified through the punishment of the wicked. The other part is concerning those whom he's destined for glory. And he wants these whom he's destined for glory to see what the riches of his grace and his power. He wants us who are called to belong to him, who are his beloved elect. He wants us to understand something of his glory and his power and his goodness and his grace toward us. To put it simply, God's glory and his goodness is more fully manifest in a universe where there's a heaven and a hell. where justice and mercy are both displayed. To put it another way, hell exists to remind you what you deserve and what you've been saved from and what you've been saved for and to cause you to be humbled and to rejoice in what God has done for you. That's another way of looking at it. The riches, those that are destined for glory god wants to make known to this group his power and his grace understanding what we are saved from should help us appreciate and enjoy and delight in what we were saved for and that shouldn't surprise us light is seen more clearly in contrast to darkness goodness in contrast to evil redemption in contrast to reprobation God wants us to appreciate what it means to have mercy on a sinner by helping us understand what it looks like to not. That's what's happening. So MacArthur defines reprobation this way, the free and sovereign choice of God made in eternity past to pass over certain individuals choosing not to set his saving love on them but instead determining to punish them for their sins unto the magnification of his justice. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology explains the doctrine of reprobation this way. He says, When we understand election as God's sovereign choice of some persons to be saved, then there is necessarily another aspect of that choice, namely God's sovereign decision to pass over others and not save them. This decision of God in eternity past is called reprobation. Reprobation. Reprobation is a sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest His perfect justice. You'll notice that in both these descriptions, they talk about God choosing the elect but passing over the non-elect. And they use different language because God's choice in the elect is not... Exactly the same in his passing over the non elect. God has delight in this choice. He has no delight in that. Ezekiel 18 says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, or not rather that he should turn from his way and live? You see, he chooses the elect in love and he chooses to pass over the non elect, the wicked. In sorrow. They're both his sovereign choice, but he doesn't make them in exactly the same way. Ezekiel thirty three eleven, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and, lived, and live. God has ordained and planned and purposed the punishment of the wicked, but not in exactly the same way as he's planned and purposed his election of his beloved. And the text itself suggests that. In verse 22, when it says there, um, God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's put in the passive or the middle. In the Greek, it's, uh, it's the same form, so we're not sure whether it's passive or middle. But what this indicates, that verb or that action, it's not something, it's not active, it's something that's done to them. The the wicked are being prepared by Satan and by sin for destruction. Or the wicked are preparing themselves by their sinful rebellion for destruction. It's passive. But when it comes to verse 23 and, 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 and what God does for the elect, it's active. And you'll notice there it says, which when it talks about uh, vessels of mercy, it says, which he has prepared before and for glory. And now the verb changes to active. This is something God is actively doing. He's preparing the vessels of mercy for glory, indicating there is something of a difference between God's choice of the elect to save them and He's passing over the non-elect and punishing them. The recipients of judgment can in no way be absolved of their responsibility. Judgment is completely deserved. And the recipients of mercy are in no no way absolved of their guilt. Mercy is completely undeserved. See, the scripture is careful to affirm that though God plans and purposes and controls over all evil, everything that happens, he himself is never the author of evil. And so the way in which God uses and plans and purposes evil is not the same way in which he plans and purposes good and love. The reason for God's judgment lies in the actions and decisions of man. It's because of their rebellion. But the reason for mercy lies in the goodness and grace of God. Mercy arises out of who God is. Judgment arises out of who man is. And that's the distinction. Why should we praise this God of wrath? Because we recognize our limits. Who are we man and who are we to answer back to God? We recognize God's sovereign right and freedom as God. And thirdly, because he demonstrates his power and his justice by putting his attributes on display in the punishment of the wicked. There's a quote from biblical doctrine. God has ordained whatever comes to pass, even the preparation of vessels of wrath unto destruction, in order that his people might enjoy the fullest display of his glory. Those who would reproach God for ordaining the destiny of the wicked for his own glory must remember that far from a megalomanical narcissism, God's pursuit of his own glory is, as Edward said, in order to the happiness of the creature. Because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God. Our knowledge of God would be imperfect if we did not see the full expression of his attributes. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, justice, righteousness, and the rest of the... Pen- Panoply of his perfections. And yet none of those attributes could be expressed fully if there wasn't sin to punish and to forgive or sinners to whom to be gracious and to whom to exercise justice. God is not less glorious but more glorious because he has ordained evil and the more he, and, and the more he magnifies his glory the greater is his love to his people. Surely God cannot be charged with unrighteousness for doing that Which amounts to the greatest benefit for those who are his. Fourth reason why we should worship this God of wrath is because we are the recipients of his mercy. And we should see more clearly how unworthy we are. And then, verse 24 to 26, he says, Who is God shown? a mercy to even us whom he's called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people will be called my people. And who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in that very place where he said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. God is going to call Himself to himself those who are not only from the heritage of Israel, but also from the Gentiles. God's grace is not limited to race or creed, or culture, or heritage, or performance. And he proves that by planning and purposing from before the creation of the world to call a people from all nations. And then Paul quotes from Hosea. And if you know the story of Hosea, God commanded him to marry this woman who went on to be unfaithful. She slept around with many different men. She left her husband and fell pregnant by these other men. And she had children by them. Um, one of them was called Jezreel, the other Lo Rohama, and the other Lo Ami. And the last two names of these children are called Not My People and Not My Loved One. Because God commanded Hosea to have this kind of marriage, which was a picture of his relationship to Israel. He said, Israel have been faithless to me. They've gone off and went after other gods. They've been unfaithful. And so their children are not going to be my people. And I'm not going to be their God. But then God does an amazing thing. And he calls Hosea to take this unfaithful wife back and to love her again. And now Paul quotes, those whom I said were not my people will be my people. And those whom I said are not loved will be loved. And this text reminds us that those who are called God's people and beloved by Him are the offspring of the faithless. We know better than those who are punished. Our wickedness is vast. Our unfaithfulness Uh, to God is complete. We turned away from him just like the rest of mankind and did all kinds of wickedness and rebellion. But somehow God, in love, drew us back to himself, undeservingly so, and made us his own. That's what this text is reminding us. The real question is not how can God punish the wicked The real question is, how can God show mercy to those who are so wicked? That's the real question. There's one final point that Paul wants to make that we be more wowed by his mercy than shocked by his wrath, and that's found in verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom, uh, been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And he quotes from Isaiah 10, verse 22 and 23 in Isaiah 1. Though there were many who could claim to be uh, Israelites by physical descent, only a remnant will be saved by God's electing grace. And then in Isaiah one nine he says, If God had not left a small remnant, a seed, a small offspring, then we would have been utterly destroyed. And what he's pointing to, yes, there are many descendants of Abraham, many who fall into the physical lineage and could call themselves Israelites by birth, but only few are chosen. Only few are God's elect. Only few are rescued from his wrath. God's plan for the majority includes judgment they deserve. The vast majority will get the judgment they deserve. But his plan for the minority is mercy and grace. That's Paul's final point. That's the nail in the coffin. Do you realize how unworthy you are to receive mercy? You've rebelled like Hosea's unfaithful wife. And do you realize that it's only the few who are plucked out and rescued from God's wrath? Do you realize that? Wrath is an expression of God's justice and is the norm for a rebellious human race. This is who we are as humans. we rebellious. We're sinful. And so we rightly deserve wrath. Mercy is the exception to the rule. Grace is inexplicable. And it's reserved for the few, the remnant, the minority, the seed, those who deserved wrath and justice, but somehow received covenant love and mercy. God judged the world in a flood and he saved eight people in the ark. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed the entire town, but he rescued Lot and his family. He literally went and had to drag Lot out of there. He took him by the hand and dragged him out of the city and didn't rain his wrath down until he had rescued Lot from that fate. When Elijah complained to God that everyone had turned away from him and were worshipping Baals and killed all the prophets, God tells him of the judgment he's going to bring upon Israel and then he says in 1 Kings 19, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God has always reserved a remnant for himself, the chosen few. That accords with Jesus' words in Matthew 7:13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few we should not be shaking our fists at God and say is this just how can, how can God punish sinners like this we, we should be shaking our heads in disbelief and say how could God show mercy to me a sinner like I am I'll close by quoting from Lorraine Butner. Many people talk as if salvation were a matter of human birthright. And forgetful of the fact that man has lost his supremely favorable chance in Adam, they inform us that God would be unjust if he didn't give all guilty creatures an opportunity to be saved. Yet it undermines the very nature of grace to suppose that it is owed to sinful human beings. Truly, the question concerning God's decree of predestination is not, why did God not choose everybody, but rather, how can it be that this supremely holy God would choose anybody? It's a marvel of marvels that the king of kings, whose glory is exalted above the heavens, should lift a finger to rescue even one of such vile traitors as the son of Adam. And then to learn that this infinitely worthy king has purposed to redeem not one, but countless multitudes at the cost of the life of his own dear son. Bows the sinner's heart in humble wonder. For those with eyes to see, all objections to these difficult doctrines are answered in the revelations of such glory. Or as Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. Wrath is right. And it calls us to worship.